open your copy of the scriptures to Psalm 25 this morning. I want to um, share with you a brief prayer request uh, that we will be praying for here in a moment in our pastoral prayer. Uh, Many of you have been able to hold a little baby in our church that has been cared for for some many weeks now, maybe a month and a half by Kat Holmgren. and uh, that little girl is going to go to her maternal grandmother this week. And so um, it's a difficult situation for the family as a whole to uh, see one of your own being handed over to other people. We're thankful for Kat and all the church coming around her to help carry for an infant um, at such a crucial time of this little girl's life. Um, but we want to pray for this little one that uh, the love that she's experienced in the first month of her life would be a love that God would continue to pour out on her in the years to come, and that she might know Christ, and that through Kat's faithfulness in caring for this little girl, that uh, her family would also come to know the Lord in a transformative way. So be in mind uh, of Kat in this circumstances in the next couple days, Um, And let us pray together this morning. Father, we thank you that as we come to you, we come not because of ourselves, but Christ in us, who indeed is our hope of glory. We thank you that you are a God who hears the prayers of sinners, for that is what we are. We have sinned against you. And we have cried out to you for your mercy and your forgiveness. And in your great grace and steadfast love, you have forgiven us. You have saved us. And you are creating for yourself a new and unique people in this world. People who are no longer going to be known as followers of the culture and the world. Devoted to temporary pleasures. Or pursuing Things that will only last here in this life. But you have set yourself apart a people who are a peculiar blessing. Who are going to be marked by evidences of Christ and his grace. Who will be reshaped to have his attitudes and aspirations. To rejoice in his salvation. To take that glorious message to others around them and to the nations around this world. We pray, Lord, that you would help us who have been forgiven so much to be able to love others with the love that you have shown us. We thank you for Kat's hospitality to this little girl. We thank you for a safe place for her to spend these weeks, the first weeks of her life. And we pray, Lord, as she goes out from a home that has brought her into the church to be cared for and be loved upon by so many, that she would go to a safe place, that you would protect her, and that, Lord, in your goodness and your mercies, you would bring to her an understanding of the gospel. We also pray for this family in such a tumultuous time that you would work through these points of contacts with other Christians so that there might be a real understanding of the transforming power of the gospel. For people who have lived apart from that knowledge that they would come to see how good it is and how good you are. 
We pray, Lord, that you would use this little girl and this family for the glory of your name. We pray that you would use your family, your people, for the glory of your name. Even this week, as we look forward to a block party, a simple means of getting back together and helping equip students for school, that this would be an occasion for us to converse with the lost around us, to invite them to an event where they can interact with other believers, where they can be exposed to the gospel through personal contact. We pray, Lord, for those in our congregation who are struggling with serious illnesses and serious burdens, who are facing uncertain times and difficult times. Let them not shrink back from you, Lord, in this moment. Let them not abandon the one who truly is a friend and who is faithful. We pray, Lord, that you would <clears throat> enlarge our hearts for you. That you would see the afflictions and the troubles that we are in. That you would rescue us from them. That you would deliver us from our sin. That you would also teach us your ways. How we might better walk in them. We pray that, that, that the word as it's going forth, both here today in this space and around this city, Platforms and pulpits will be full of the gospel and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They would call sinners to repentance and faith. That you would bless the preaching of your word as it's being heralded around the world. And that through it you would build a people who would know you intimately. And who would declare your goodness to the world. We ask this Lord because this is our prayer. This is our need. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever faced something that was inescapable and terrifying? As a seventh grader, <clears throat> I went through my own Wonder Years experience. We were playing baseball in PE, and the school's equipment had to be shared, so if you were coming from the outfield up to bat, you would trade off your gloves to someone who was going out to the field. And each time we traded sides, there was a freshman who was picking on me, and he would hand me the glove a little bit harder each time. I finally got tired of him, <clears throat> and I hit him back as hard as I dared with the PE teacher being close by. Well, after P.E., on our way inside, the freshman got into my face, or should I actually say, it wasn't really my face, I was more like looking at his belly button, um, and he called me out for a fight after school because of that. Something terrifying and inescapable, because there were still a couple hours left in the day, and I couldn't think of anything else. That little knot in my stomach began to just turn me into a shaking, quivering person, uh, I couldn't figure out a way to avoid this conflict. <clears throat> Word was traveling fast within the 7th grade class, the 8th grade class, the ninth grade class. During breaks between classes, some kids actually came up to me to say, Hey man, <clears throat> it's pretty brave of you to stand up to him like that. But actually most of the people were like offering condolences of the beating I was about to take. <laughs> this kid knew how to box. 
This is the first fight I was ever in. It, I wish I could say it was an epic struggle and like some Herculean event, I overcame my adversary, but within a few seconds, my nose was pouring out blood, and thankfully, the custodian had seen all these kids kind of sneak into this unfinished part of the building that was under construction, and he chased us down, broke it up, and turned us into the principal. Now, instead of a bully, some of us are facing real problems that are terrifying and inescapable. Maybe financial hardships, it may be mental health issues, it may be a burden uh, for a child that is going in a wayward direction and you're anticipating the conversation that you're going to have to have with them. It could be that it's a dream unfulfilled. It could be an addiction that you're facing. Most of us don't go out looking for trouble. But reality is that it will find us in the most unexpected of ways. Scripture teaches us that trouble comes from two sources. First, we live in a fallen world and there is nothing but trouble in this world. Second, it comes from within us, within our own hearts that are sinful. Now, we've created all sorts of ways to cope with these troubles that we can't escape. Sadly, most of these solutions don't help at all. Even for the Christian, some troubles are so intense, they threaten to destroy our faith. They tempt us to question God's love and goodness. So if you find yourself facing down some insurmountable, inescapable trouble today, let me just say to you, you are not alone. God is eager to pour out His love and mercy to all who call upon Him. In the Bible, He has given us helpful guidance through the lives of others who have faced hardship. So if you haven't opened to Psalm 25, I encourage you to do that. It's on page 459 in the Bibles that are provided in the chairs. And we will find that David, a man just like us, I mean, he was full of problems. He created many of his own situations through the sin in his own heart, but he was also a man who was facing real hardships from the world around him that he found himself in. He was a king in ancient Israel, and God allowed him to experience things and recorded in such a way that proved to be a help to us today. So, in order to trust this guy who wrote this a long, long time ago, whom we've never met, I think it's helpful if we look at verses 16 through 21 first in order to gain a little bit of an appreciation for the situation in which David found himself in. So, follow along as I read from Psalm 25, beginning in verse 16. Turn to me, And be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my troubles and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. 
Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. David is in real trouble. He's alone, he's afflicted, he's overwhelmed by these troubles, and he struggles with guilt over his sin and real enemies who want to take his life. I'm not sure that many of us have been in that situation before. So as we look at this psalm, we're going to understand how David faces these troubles from within his own heart and from without. So let's begin at the beginning now and work our way through. And as we do, I think we're going to discover two principles that David teaches us. First is, in the first seven verses, we must resolve to hope in God. This is the principle for all who find themselves facing something terrifying that is inescapable. You must resolve to hope in God, verses 1 through 7. And secondly, Verses 8 through 15, we must rejoice in God's faithfulness. So let's unpack this this morning. Beginning in verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Where do we look to find our confidence? Naturally, here's how we respond. Our first response is often we look to ourselves, our own resources. So it's our willpower. I just need to try harder and I will be more successful. I need to learn more and I trust my own intellect. Or it's our network of friends and family or our bank accounts. That is where we normally look first. Our own resources. Why do we so often fail to look to God? Well, it seems to be a consistent human defect. This desire for autonomy and self-sufficiency. In spite of the fact that verse 3 says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Who's the ones that will be ashamed? Those who are wantonly treacherous. What we see right at the beginning here is David refused to trust in his own strength, his own experiences and abilities. He was at a point where he recognized God alone is my help. God is faithful. God will keep his word. Look again, verse 3. None who wait for God shall be put to shame. David put his trust in the Lord. He believed God would never disappoint those who trusted him. Notice, there is no timetable that is promised. And David isn't praying for a newer chariot. He's not praying for the fastest horse. 
and neither should we. God is not a genie in a bottle whom we can use for our selfish ambition. David's example is meant to teach us that hoping in God is an active experience. And so how does he act on this hope? What does this hope look like? He's confident that God is going to be his answer, his solution, his provider, his protector. But what does it look like? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. It begins with a prayer for guidance. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all the day long. Now think about this. When David asks God for guidance, he isn't asking God to teach and persuade him, or he is asking God to teach and persuade him that God's word has the answers. That God's word is truth, a truth that should lead and direct his steps and his path. David isn't asking what college he should go to, He's asking that God would help him to act on what he knows of God through his word. And this is, I think, a big struggle. Too often our challenge is we don't want to do what we know we ought to do as a follower of Jesus. We hold grudges even though we are told God forbids it and commands us not to be bitter. We lie. We steal time at work. We steal someone else's work, and we appropriate and take credit for it. And yet God says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You see, in our efforts to get ahead, we violate Scripture. And yet the Scripture says, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Instead of turning from evil, we give ourselves over to it. And the psalmist knows his own heart, and he says, God, so teach me the truth that I will not deviate from it. Hide your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you, David will write in another psalms. So you may be facing trouble in your life right now. The pressure is building. And let me just encourage you this morning, instead of trusting yourself or your ability, or your connections to get you through this experience, do as David did and ask God for guidance. Think about it. If this man who slayed a giant, who is described as a man after God's own heart, who wrote many psalms, who was a king over a nation, if this kind of guy needed God's help, certainly we do, right? But perhaps you're not a follower of God. And the troubles you're facing typically have, have overwhelmed you to the point that you run to drink or to drugs or to something else. You just pick up and you're not worried about the financial repercussions and you move and you default on debt. Whatever your situation is and your track record with dealing with these kinds of circumstances, have you considered that perhaps God in his mercy has allowed trouble to come into your life in order that it may overwhelm you and lead you to call out for Jesus? That God is actively drawing your attention to himself so that you might hear his voice and respond in faith and trust in the Most Holy One. 
Now, David speaks of enemies here, and sometimes the trouble we face doesn't just come from the outside as a victim of the world. Sometimes we are the villain. We are the troublemakers. We're not the victim. And so that trouble may come from within our own hearts. So here it is. David is reflecting on sin, as he says in these verses. Verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. I mean, David may be struggling with guilt, things that were unconfessed. And many times, it's a sin we just committed or a sin from years ago that still haunts us. And sometimes, the consequences of sin linger long after the practice of that sin has passed. You've lost your character. You've ruined your reputation. And that hangs around you because of behavior leading up to it. So here's David. If we are to follow God as David did, we must learn not only to ask for God's guidance, but also for forgiveness. And that's what we see here in verses 6 and 7. So David is praying for God's guidance, and now David prays for forgiveness. And we need guidance for dealing with problems outside of us, and we need guidance for dealing with problems inside of us, the truth we need to hide in our hearts so that we don't sin. We need forgiveness for those actions. And so David says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love in verse 6, for they have been from of old. I don't know if you've thought about this much lately. It kind of caused me to stop and think, how does God see you this morning? I mean, when your face flashes in front of his eyes, now understand I'm using things we can relate to. I have no ability to describe the the supremacy of God's knowledge and His omniscience. It's far beyond us. But you think about it. You see a picture of someone scrolling through social media, or you see someone, and what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you see that person? Now, take this from God's perspective. What is the thing that you think He sees first about you? Is it unconfessed sin or secret practices? Or is it that God says, I see someone here who is following me in righteousness, who is longing to be free from sin, who's walking in holiness? The Bible says that God created each of us in His image, which means that He designed us to uniquely reflect Him to others, to demonstrate what His character is like. The problem is that because of our sin nature and the sinful attitudes and actions that we commit, we completely misrepresent God. Our sin against God, in fact, puts us under His righteous judgment. Now, the good news is, the Scriptures tell us in the New Testament, that God sent His Son, Jesus, into this world to live as the perfect image bearer. So, Jesus obeyed in every way possible and in every way that we have not. But not only did God send Jesus to live in a manner which we can't, He also sent His Son to pay the penalty we deserved. And so Jesus willingly went to the cross and laid down his life for us, for ours. 
Now the question is, what will you do with this? Will you be like the psalmist and pray for the forgiveness of your sins? Will you turn from evil and trust in Jesus? Or will you seek to continue to solve your problems your own way? And here's the confidence that we have. According to 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He, being God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you can have confidence that if you pray for forgiveness, that God will give you that forgiveness. And today is the day, friend, that you should reject your sin and you should receive Christ as Savior. So there are people around you Talk to them on the way out. This is why we gather as a church, because we are all committed to these truths. We all confess a faith that follows Jesus. On the back of your bulletin is a list of elders. See one of them after the service this morning. Ask questions. We want to help you. But the gospel isn't just to convert sinners. It's also to comfort saved sinners. You see, Christian, that The sacrifice that God made on your behalf demonstrates His absolute love and His ability to forgive. And so as we reflect on the gospel, we remember that God sees us now. We may feel that the the eye is squinted at us a little bit, but the fact of the matter is that God sees us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Can the Father look at His Son and say, I find fault in you? No. I mean, think about that. The the powerful, transformative grace of God that in spite of the sins we've committed and in spite of the sins we will commit, God has such righteousness in Christ that He can wash all of it away so that there is no hesitation on God's part. There is no regret on God's part. It's all been dealt with because of Jesus. Now, that is not an excuse to sin so that grace may abound. Paul deals with that in Romans. That is meant to inspire love and devotion and joy in us. If he he loved me, knowing all, all that I would ever do, and he still chose to love me, how then can I not serve him? How can I get myself so tied up in my mental gymnastics that, oh, he couldn't love me for this. Oh, because I did this again for the umpteenth time. He's done with me. No, 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 Christian. He, his love endures forever. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's the God who loves us. It is the joy for us to be able to speak these things to others. How did David <clears throat> How did David understand this though? Well, we're helped by those who have devoted themselves to the study of the book of Psalms. Now, if you look at the book of Psalms, it's it's like 150 chapters, right? I'm just working off the top of my head. Um, there's a lot of different psalms in there. There's one scholar who points out the structure of the Psalms. His name is uh, Palmer Robertson. And in his book, The Flow of the Psalms, he, he writes and, and points things out in such a way that it makes me think that David knew what he was doing. We read Psalm 25 and we think it all stands by itself. When in, tr- 
truth, the book of Psalms is broken up into five smaller books. So we're in the first book, which is the first Psalm all the way to the 41st. What's interesting is, I'm going to gently teach you something here for a moment, all right? So just hang with me. There's real merit here. But Psalm 25 follows a grouping of five kingly psalms, chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. Right before those five kingly psalms are Psalm 18 and 19. Now, if you just know how your numbers work, you, already, you, you get this. But Psalms 18 and 19, <clears throat> they are like a pivot point in this first book of the psalms, the first 41 Because what they do, Psalm 18 is messianic psalm, which repeatedly uses the image of the Lord as a rock. Psalm 19 is, some would say, a precursor to Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And it is a book or a psalm all about the law. And what purpose does the law serve? It teaches us the way of the Lord, and it convicts us of sin. And so what we find here, based on how he's brought these things to light, is that chapter 5 is actually a king who knows he's a king, who knows he's supposed to rule in righteousness that's not his own. It informs the way he thinks. I have been given this role by God's grace in order to demonstrate his righteousness to the world, and yet I'm troubled by the sin in my own heart. I'm also troubled by the key people, who, the Philistines, who don't want me to be the king of Israel. So the psalmist understands, and he applies both of these in Psalm 25. There are ten times that he references Psalm 19. He pleads with the Lord, show me, teach me, guide me, teach me. He instructs, he guides, he teaches, he will instruct, he confides, he makes known. All of these are right here in Psalm 25. And so what we see is if he is the king, that the the king is struggling against Israel's enemies. That's Psalm 3 through 17. And then he's struggling against sin in the world and sin in his own heart in Psalms 18 through 41. So all that implies is this, that David was to be a king who defeated God's enemies and led God's people in keeping the law. And so David, when he says, Lord, instruct me through your word, teach me its truths, he's saying, I need you in order to do what you've called me to do, to be who you've called me to be. Where did this confidence arise that David had? If he had hope in God, where did it come from? Well, you look at verses 8 through 15. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord... Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant, 
My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. How can we expect God to hear us when we feel unclean? When we feel unclean. Remember what I said a moment ago. God views us in the righteousness of Jesus. We feel the dirt of James Proctor or whoever you are. That's what we feel. But look at verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. You see what He said? God teaches sinners His way. He doesn't teach them how to sin. He teaches them how to live in ways that reflect Him rightly. Think about that for a moment. We aren't left to our own devices God is actively teaching and leading the Christian through His Word. This is why the psalmist had confidence and he rejoiced in God's faithfulness. He knew that God taught sinners how to live righteous and holy lives. Now, seeing that God is good and upright may discourage some, as though He's unapproachable. But remember who wrote this psalm. He wasn't only a giant killer. He wasn't only a man after God's own heart. He was an adulterer and a murderer. He was a derelict father. This guy had his flaws. And yet, David says with absolute confidence, I know you will hear me and you will help me. Some of us may think God has forgiven me, but he's still angry. And you kind of tiptoe around on eggshells, not wanting to set him off. Well, let me just ask you, how can you trust a God like that? Let the encouragement of verse 10 settle into your heart for a while. Look at what he says again there. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So let me ask you, how many of God's paths are steadfast love and faithful? Say it out loud. All. Every single one of them. So let me ask you then, what will the Lord allow in your life that is not ultimately loving and faithful? Is there anything at all that the Lord will allow in your life that is not loving and will not remind you of His faithfulness? There's not one thing. Because everything is constructed by God to lead us to this place of absolute dependence on Him and confidence that He is a God who hears and who cares. Look at the second part, the second condition that we find in verse 8. God cares for us deeply. Or verse 10, I'm sorry. Saved sinners can be confident that God will instruct them, but not every sinner. Because verse 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right, and He teaches the humble His ways. So this is the requirement. It is to be humble. And not just a humility that's fake, but a sincere humility and it is people, sinners, as the psalmist describes us. It is the humble sinner who will be instructed. It is the humble servant who will experience all the paths of God's love and faithfulness. It is for those, at the last part of verse 10, who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Now, we all struggle with humility. We don't really struggle with humility. We struggle with pride and the lack of humility. And we all certainly fail to keep God's law perfectly, 
So where is our hope? If we can't keep God's ways perfectly, how will we then experience his love and faithfulness? Well, you look at this. Look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your name, O Lord. You see, we are not asking forgiveness because we deserve it. We are asking for forgiveness because of the promises that God makes surrounding forgiveness. Those promises are made to us in Jesus. David wasn't standing before a holy God and seeking to blame someone else. He wasn't like, oh, it wasn't that really that bad. He was humble and honest. And the reality is that in every occasion in the Scriptures where someone is in the presence of God, they automatically confess how sinful they are and how holy God is. So here's David, who trusts in the name of the Lord because he is confident that this is a God who will forgive. This is a God who will guide, who will help, who will teach. And speaking on Psalm 25, Pastor John Piper writes this. And I think this is really helpful, which is why I've included it. All right? Keeping the covenant of God did not mean living perfectly. Oh, wait a second. Let me repeat that. Keeping the covenant of God did not mean living perfectly. It meant a life of habitual devotion and trust and love to the Lord. A life where one turned from evil and followed Him in His ways. When there was a shortcoming, when you failed God and you did sin, a covenant-keeping person remembered the words of the covenant on Mount Sinai that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And that person repented and offered a sacrifice and received forgiveness and restoration. You see, God has not called you to be perfect. You can't be. God has called you to obey His teaching, which says when you're not perfect, cry out for forgiveness and I will forgive. And that's what it means for the Christian to live in a covenant relationship with God. It's not to be perfect so that we can brag about it. It's to recognize our imperfections and to follow God where He teaches and leads us. Piper goes on to say he thinks that this is one of the best places that that shows that covenant keeping is not possible, nor is it burdensome. In Psalm 25, we see these numerous gracious acts of God which cannot be earned, and yet those who keep covenant with God will enjoy blessings of this grace. And all that God requires of us to receive His guidance, His steadfast love, His instruction, and His protection is to trust Him and to humble ourselves before Him. And notice it's not sinners that are spoken of in verses 8 and 11. It's covenant-keeping sinners. It is they who receive God's guidance and protection. In other words, Piper closes with this. Even though we sin every day in various ways, there is a profound difference between sinners who keep God's covenant, verse 10, and sinners who don't. The issue facing us in light of this psalm is whether we wait for the Lord and take refuge in Him, and fear Him, and are humble before Him, and in this way keep His covenant, these are the sinners whom God will guide and protect. 
So as we meditate upon who God is this morning, you know what happens? It takes our mind off ourselves. And we begin to look outside of ourselves for hope. And we find that there's only one place to find unchanging, trustworthy hope in this world, and it is actually in God. We see this transformation in verses 12 through 15 that occurred in David when he began to look at God and confess sin. His troubles fell away. His hope and his confidence are restored. And this is the point for us. All who come to God for guidance and forgiveness will find that their Creator is a true friend of sinners. Look at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. God will teach us His ways. He guarantees, Christian, you will finish your race in faithfulness. Though the righteous man stumbles, yet he will, shall not fall, for the Lord upholdeth him with His hand. Psalm 37 says. As you look at verse 22, this final word and before we close, it seems really out of place because it says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The, the psalmist has been speaking about himself or sinners in a generic sense. And now he's, he's speaking of a corporate entity called Israel. Why would that be the case in the final verse for this psalm? Why is it here? Because David makes it clear that he understood that what God has taught him applies not only to him as the king, not only to him as a Jew, a Hebrew, but it applies to every person who is in the covenant with God. Everyone who knows God as a faithful friend because they have prayed for the forgiveness of their sins, because they plead for guidance as they deal with issues outside of them and inside their own hearts, they have a confidence in God. We can be assured that if we trust God, we will not be disappointed no matter what the circumstances we face. God will deliver us. So when trouble threatens you and it's inescapable and it's terrifying, what should you do? Refuse to trust in yourself. Seek God and rejoice in His faithfulness. Lord, we pray that You would help us drive these truths into our hearts, Lord. Because we are prone to forget. We are prone to be distracted. We're prone to doubt. Honestly, Lord, we struggle with faith. And so many times we will see these problems as insurmountable, as bigger than anything else and anyone else, and yet we still scramble and work to try to solve it in our own strength. Lord, just make us trust your word. Show us through the witness of other Christians and and the examples that they share as we do life with one another and we talk about, I've been there before, and this is how God did this. And here's what God taught me through this. Let us learn from others. Make us humble so that we're teachable. Give us faith so that we will follow your guidance. Bring us into this relationship with you through your son Jesus so that we may know you as a friend of sinners and not an angry judge. Lord, these are all our prayers. And we know that these are prayers that bring you glory 
that show we respect you, we honor you, and we need you. So, Lord, build your church upon the truth of Jesus and your word and make us better followers of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and let's sing to this great God that we have been saved by and who does not abandon us in our time of need.